So here we have this exchange. Now, it's an interesting exchange. The, the entire exchange is, is fairly interesting. Here we have this rich guy who's positive that he's doing fine. He's, he's good. He's all set. He's well-to-do. And so he lives in Israel. He's a well-to-do guy. His eternal destiny is, is set. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, of course, he's going to go to, to the kingdom of God. I mean, he's, he's well-to-do. That's how that works. He has the ability to fulfill all of the requirements of the law and to do all of the sacrifices and keep all the feasts and holidays and, and to do them well, to really do them up big, make sure and offer big sacrifices for every sacrifice and big offerings for every offering. And well, of course, that's going to do it, right? So when he steps out of this world and lifts up his eyes being in torment, I, I think that he was extremely shocked. He missed it. He missed the truth. He missed how to obtain salvation. And he gets into an argument. I'm not going to re-preach last week's sermon, but you might want to listen to that. He, he gets in an argument with Abraham. Really? You're going to stand there in torment, in the place of eternal torment, and get into a theological argument with Abraham about what it takes to make someone repent? Really? You'd think by that point it would kind of occur to him that maybe you don't actually have a real insight as to how you go about getting salvation. You'd think that would occur to him. Apparently it doesn't. But Abraham has a response. And his clear response is they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. What they need is a miracle. Moses and the prophets can't get the job done. He's wrong. He's absolutely wrong. The fact is, Moses and the prophets can get the job done. In fact, he says, but he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even though one raises from the dead. If you talk to people who are unsaved and they say, I don't even believe in God. And you say to them, well, what are you supposed to take to make you believe in God? Well, I don't know if I saw some big miracle. You might want to pop that bubble for them. You might want to help them realize that even if they saw some big miracle, that wouldn't help. In fact, all you need to do to see a big miracle is look at your hand. There you go. There's a big miracle. The human hand itself is a miracle. Your eye, which is looking at it, and your brain, which is perceiving it, and the very ability to perceive just how miraculous and amazing your hand is, well, all of those are miracles. Is that helping? You believe in God yet? You already knew all that and declared you don't believe in God. So miracles are not going to help. What you need to do is actually believe what God says. So I want us to take a moment this morning, and I want us to look at what did the Old Testament gospel look like? Now, we all know that ultimately it is completely fulfilled in the coming of Christ. Jesus, by the way, does not annul the Old Covenant. He doesn't cancel it. He fulfills it. Every requirement of the Old Covenant is fulfilled by the life of Jesus, which is why at this point there is no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. 
I'm going to go through the Old Testament gospel, but the Old Testament gospel to this day will not save you. You need Jesus. He's got to fulfill it. The moment Jesus came and died and fulfilled all the old covenant, the name of Jesus is now preached from here on out. And if you believe the Old Testament gospel, as I'm about to give it to you, when you heard the name of Jesus, he would fit into your view of salvation like a hand fits into a glove. You would immediately go, oh, well, we've just been waiting for Jesus. Okay. That's how that goes. So we have Moses and the prophets. All right. What does an Old Testament gospel look like? Well, okay, let's start with Moses. Let's start at Genesis. Let's start at the original Genesis 1 account where God creates a perfect heaven and earth. This is a crucial point to get here. There's clearly something wrong with the world. There's clearly something wrong with us. The question is what? What is wrong with us? How did we end up with something wrong with us? Is this God's fault? Is the world just wrong? I mean, did God just kind of not really make the world perfect? And the answer to that is, of course, not. God did create a perfect world. God put Adam and Eve in this perfect world, and God gave them one simple instruction. Don't eat to the tree in the middle of the garden. That's it. Every tree of the garden you may freely eat. There's, there's just fantastic food, fantastic weather. You've actually got a, a perfect marriage could you imagine? And you guys are without sin. All you need to do is just one thing. Don't eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. Don't eat of it. You'd think they could pull that off. But of course they don't. Satan comes along, completely lies to them, tells them that, oh, God is holding out on you. God doesn't really love you. God knows that if you eat of the tree, then you won't need him anymore, and you can become a god yourself, and you can determine good and evil all on your own without God having to intervene. Eve, by the way, is deceived by that and thinks that she's doing the right thing. I must have misunderstood what God told me. Adam knows that that is completely wrong and that, of course, God loves him, and the last thing he should be doing is eating of this tree, but he eats of it anyway because... Well, who doesn't want to be like God after all? So in total rebellion, he eats. That's why we have a problem in this world. That's what happened to the world. God created a perfect world, and our response to that was to rebel against the love of God. That is a crucial thing to get. Because how are you going to repent of what's wrong if you don't know what's wrong? If you can't figure out what's wrong? If you can't put together what went wrong? That's what went wrong. That is what's wrong with the world. We rebelled against the perfectness that God created. God intervenes. After that, he shows up. He talks to them. And he gives a, he has a discussion with Adam and Eve and the serpent. And he talks to the serpent. And the Lord God says to the serpent this. Because you have done this, deceived them, lied to them, cursed are you more than all cattle. And more than every beast of the field on your belly, you're going to go now. And dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He, singular, is going to bruise you on the head and you will bruise him, singular, on the heel. Here we are, Genesis chapter 3. We haven't even got to Genesis 4 yet. We're, just, we're only in Genesis chapter 3, the third chapter. Man has sinned, 
God has intervened and promised a deliverer. The seed of the woman, which is a really, already you ought to be going, wait a minute, that's not how that works. Already God has put forward that I am going to send a deliverer from the woman, which we know, of course, by the time Mary comes along and has a virgin birth of Jesus, suddenly all that really makes sense. That all just, you're like, ah, oh, yeah, Jesus fits that perfectly. And of course he does. But at this moment, you have to read that and wonder. You have to ask yourself exactly what is God promising here? He is promising a deliverer who's going to crush the serpent's head, the one who led us into sin, and he is going to bruise his heel, however that works, we're not sure. But what we do believe is that God is going to send a deliverer. This is the gospel. What? what? God's going to send a deliverer. Our salvation is not of ourselves. Our salvation is not of what we do. Our salvation is not some effort that we make, some, some task that God has given us. God is going to send a deliverer who is going to defeat our great enemy. And he's going to come from the seed of the woman. If you believe that, you don't need all the details at that point. You don't need to know that his name is Jesus. You don't need to know that he's going to die on a cross to fulfill the the Old Testament law. You don't need to know any of that. All you need to know is that I'm no longer trusting myself. I'm trusting God to send a deliverer, the details of which I am not completely clear. I'm really exactly sure how this all works, but that's okay. I trust God. God then goes on, and he, remember Adam and Eve, as soon as God shows up in the garden, they run for it. They hide. They sow fig leaves together. Like all human religions, this is not sufficient. They picked the wrong thing to cover themselves with, and it didn't get the job done. God shows up, and when he's done having his discussion with them and works on throwing them out of the garden, he covers them. But what does God cover them with? Well, they use leaves. God used the skin of an animal, which requires the death of the animal, which requires the shedding of blood which requires you are, now remember, Adam and Eve at this juncture have never seen death. The animals, which Adam has named, are all like pets, all of them. God calls one of them over and proceeds to kill it, they've never seen death, and proceeds to take its skin off, which... Sure, they had no idea that could even happen. Why? You can take the skin off them? Oh, and by the way, now that we've taken the skin off the animals, we're going to be covering you in it. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think they paraded around nice and proud in their new animal skin clothing. I think this was horrific. This was shameful. This was, you're covering me in the, in the, in the skin of a dead animal. I haven't even seen death before. And now I'm covered in it. Uh-huh. You're covered in death. Because that is the only way that we are going to be able to cover your sin. Atonement is going to occur through the death of an animal. And then you're covered. So immediately the concepts of death of an animal to atone for sin, to cover over what you've done, 
All of these things are right here. By the time Cain and Abel arrive, there's a system of sacrifice in place. Abel will offer the correct bloody sacrifice of one of his lambs. And if you really want my opinion, for what it's worth, um, I think the animal that God killed to cover an Adam and Eve with was a lamb. But it doesn't say that. It's just a guess. If I had to guess, that's what I'd guess, though. Um, but by now, Abel offers a lamb. Cain offers, and I don't want to get into that whole discussion. Cain has a lot of problems. I don't know that it's necessarily that he brought the fruit of the ground and the ground was cursed. There's a case that could be made for that. Cain's got just so many more problems than that. Cain has just got a horrific attitude. He's not coming and offering any of this with the right spirit whatsoever, and all you need to do is read the account. God is not happy with Cain's offering, and the, the reason is not completely detailed. And Cain doesn't go, oh, I'm so sorry, what can I do? What, would, what, what can I do to make this right? Instead, he just gets mad at God and mad at his brother and mad at everybody and eventually goes out and murders his brother. He's got a whole pile of problems. But there is a sacrificial system in place. Why doesn't Moses, in the writing of the book of Genesis, go into detail? Well, you know, he's, he's going to be writing shortly Leviticus and Deuteronomy, which is going to go into all kinds of detail about this. So there's no point in cluttering up this account. Cain, of course, kills Abel. And then later, Genesis 4.25, Adam has relations with his wife again, and she gives birth to a son and names him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me an offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And to Seth, to him also was a son born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Implying what? We trust God. We are looking to God. We are displaying faith in who God is. We're calling upon God to rescue us. We're calling upon God to save us. The name of God is the name of our God. And we are calling upon him and worshiping him. And we're offering these sacrifices to him. And our faith is in him. We're calling on the name of the Lord. This, this occurs all over the place, by the way. 1 Kings 18, 24. Then you call on the name of your God. This is Elijah on the Mount of, uh, up there on Mount Carmel. He's saying, you guys call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. They all said, yeah, that, that sounds about right. And we all know how that account went. Elijah called on the name of the Lord, and the fire fell. Isaiah 45, 44, 5. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And that one will call in the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord. And will name Israel's name with honor. They're going to call in the name of God. And of course, we know as you get into the New Testament, Acts chapter 2, Peter gets up and preaches. It shall be that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul writes the same thing to the church at Rome in chapter 10. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We've been calling on the name of the Lord since Seth. We've been calling on the name of the Lord since Adam was alive. Call on the name of the Lord. Trust in the name of the Lord. Trust only in God. And you are well on your way to belief. 
Noah, by the time he gets on the boat, he brings clean and unclean animals. Where did he get that? Obviously, I think, God explained all that to Adam and Eve. And Adam explained it to his kids, who explained it to their kids. And by the time we get to Noah, I mean, we've got Cain and Abel with a sacrificial system. Noah continues on with the sacrificial system. And Noah brings clean and unclean animals. And when he gets off the boat, he sacrifices the clean animals in reliance on God. So here we are. He relies on God's grace. He gives a life in place of his life. He redeems his life. He admits that he is guilty before God and needs to thank God. He's calling on the name of the Lord. That's exactly what this looks like. We get to Abraham. Abraham, you'll recall, wins this great battle with the five kings and brings back all the stuff, and then he gives a tenth of it to Melchizedek. If you're Jewish... You need to think a little more carefully about Melchizedek. He is a really interesting Old Testament character, worthy of thinking long and hard about. Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of everything to him. In fact, if you read the book of Hebrews, it will go into detail about how Levi the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, because he's in the loins of his father, I mean, they're not born yet, but it's coming. He, while in Abraham, gave to Melchizedek, which is why Jesus doesn't come. Jesus is not a Levite. He's from the wrong tribe. He's from the tribe of Judah. And he is a priest, not after the order of Aaron and the Levites. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Really fascinating. Really fascinating. God calls to Abraham and gives him a covenant and says to him in Genesis 22, the angel of the Lord calls to Abraham a second time from heaven and says, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing, you are going to offer your son, Isaac, and you have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed will possess the gates of your enemies. In your seed, each time, by the way, that, that is a singular. It's, it's not plural. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Paul will write to the church at Galatia, at Galatia and say, now the promise... Promises are spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say to seeds, plural, as referring to many, but rather to one, to your seed. That is Christ. When God speaks to Abraham and promises to him the seed, this is the seed of the woman. This is the exact same promise that was given when he was standing there. It, it's just, it's in the Old Testament. All you have to do is look at it. The promise is to look forward to the one who is going to come and to deliver us. Salvation in the Old Testament occurred not through your works, but through your belief in the coming deliverer that God was going to send. Paul will write in Romans chapter 4, What shall we say then about Abraham our father according to the flesh? What, what is it that he has found? If Abraham were justified by works... Well, he has a lot to glory about, but not before God. What says the scriptures? Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him for righteousness. So it's, it's not of works. It's not the works that Abraham did. It's that he believed. 
It is faith. It has always been by faith. Under the old covenant, it was by faith. Abraham was saved by faith. Noah was saved by faith. Everyone under the old covenant was saved was saved by faith. They certainly weren't saved by their works. They certainly weren't saved by what good people they were. Job, who was a contemporary, by the way, with, with Abraham, the book of Job, you just read it. What is man that he should be pure? Or he that is born of a woman that he should be righteous? Job 15. Behold, God, he puts no trust in his holy ones. And the heavens are not pure in the sight of God. How much less one who is detestable and corrupt. Man who drinks iniquity like water. That's us. That's us. Spurgeon said you can't slander human nature. It's, it's not possible. I, I, I'd have to agree with that. And yet Job will say, though the Lord slay me, I will hope in him. Job trusts God. He doesn't trust himself. He's not trusting himself. He's trusting God. When we get to the actual life of Moses, we're in the, you know, the, the books here, but when we actually get to the life of Moses, the great redeeming event by which God leads the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt is the final miracle, the Passover. And what happens is you are to kill a lamb. You are to eat it all. This, by the way, this is the Last Supper. When Jesus sits down at the Last Supper, it's the Passover. That's the meal. You're going to kill the lamb. And you're going to take the blood and you're going to put it on the, on the two side posts and on the top. And when the death angel, which is going to kill the firstborn of all in Egypt, makes its way through, when it comes to a house of the blood, God hovers over that house. And the death angel passes over. The death angel passes over those with the blood. It doesn't strike. The firstborn doesn't die. When you do the Passover, you display your faith in the blood to protect you. Talk about an Old Testament gospel, huh? Jesus will take this very ceremony at the Last Supper and will say to them, eat, this is my body, drink, this is my blood. And what's really fascinating, and we'll get to this when we get to it, but there's a, there's a time difference between the Jews and the, and the Gentiles on exactly when the Passover occurs so that Jesus can have the Passover at night with his disciples and die the next afternoon as the Passover lambs are killed by the Jews. Even though he's already had the Passover meal with his disciples. And if you haven't noticed that before, you should. There's two Passovers. There's the one the night before and then the, and then the one that Jesus actually dies as the Lamb of God the next day. And it's because of the fact that they... One calculates the day by the sunrise, and one calculates the day by the sunset. And so it makes for a 12-hour difference between the two. Anyway, so then we come to, they actually get out there in the wilderness, and we have the Day of Atonement. What happens on the Day of Atonement? Well, the actual sacrificial animal, Leviticus chapter 1, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock, 
If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be acceptable before the Lord. Here's how this works. You did this with the Passover lamb too, by the way. It lived in your house for three or four days, up to a week. Everybody, you know, one-year lamb. You ever see a one-year lamb? They are just adorable. They're just these cute little things. Everybody gets attached to it. And then this happens. He shall lay his hands on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. He shall slay the young bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around on the altar that is on the doorway of the tent of the meeting. Why do you put your hands on the animal's head? To put your sin on the animal. And then it's killed while you hold on to it. Don't think there were some real tears shed when that Passover lamb was killed. And the kids all had to lay their hands on its head. Why? Because sin is serious. And it's atoned for by death. It's covered by death. This is the Old Testament. This is why when when Abraham looked at the rich man, he's like, you know, they're not going to pay attention to Moses and the prophets. No miracle that's going to help. If they can't figure out that God is going to send a deliverer, that God needs atonement for their sin, that they need to trust the the savior that God is going to send and that they are sinners and that the whole sacrificial system, the whole idea here was to impute your sin on the animal. It happened all over the place. It just everywhere it occurs Uh, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. I mean, you put your hands on the animal's head and it was killed and you held on to it while all the blood ran out and then the blood got spread all over everywhere. Why? Because you have to cover sin. This is what you're trusting in. You're trusting in the sacrifice to cover your sin. Not your works. It's not your good works. In fact, you, you, know, you, you get to King Saul. King Saul, I, if we see that guy in heaven, I, I'll be a little surprised. I, I don't think he makes it. I think this is a guy who's really close. He's always next to the people of God, kind of. I mean, like Samuel. I mean, after all, they made him king. But this guy never does the right thing. He's always got some little twist on it that's got to be what he wants to do. And when the moment came, he had no problem killing the priests of God. Okay, you don't kill the priests of God and then claim to be one of the children of God. God sends him out to destroy the Amalekites. Kill them all. They're all going to die from something anyway, but I want you to be the instrument by which judgment falls on them so that they know this is coming from the hand of God, not just randomly. So he goes out, and of course, we know what he does. He, he almost kills everybody. Of course, he brings the king back because that, you know, you can put him under his table and make a servant out of him. That would really help his ego. And uh, they save the best of the bulls and goats and the, and the sheep, you know? Well, we killed all the, the lame and the sick and everything, but we, we brought back the best. Why? Well, you know, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. I mean, after all, right? And this is what Samuel says to Saul. Saul says, I, I did obey the voice of the Lord. I went on the exact mission which the Lord sent me, and it brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. The people. The people took some of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice the Lord your God. 
I mean, after all, that's what counts, right? I mean, isn't, isn't that what God wants? God wants sacrifice, so, you know, I mean. No, no, you completely misunderstand the whole situation. Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. God doesn't need your sacrifices. What, you think God's hungry? God's not hungry. God's not thirsty. God doesn't need, this isn't for God. This isn't for you. You are supposed to be obedient. Rebellion is like the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. And you're not going to buy your way out of it with a bunch of, a, a bunch of God's cattle that you've stolen. Like robbing a bank to put in the offering plate. God doesn't need you robbing a bank to put in the offering plate. There's a, no. Well, I sent you over to destroy the Amalekites, not to bring back the sheep and goats and to say, oh, well, we're offering them a sacrifice. I already own them. You were supposed to destroy them. You don't bring them back to somehow win favor by offering some big sacrifice. But, Saul completely misunderstands the situation. Joel will say this, rend your heart and not your garment. Return to the Lord your God. He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. God desires to relent of evil. When David sins with Bathsheba, you would think that this would be the moment, right? This would be the moment to empty out the flocks. Every sheep I own, we're going to bring in here and slaughter it to somehow pay for my sin. Is that what David does? No, David doesn't do that. Why? Because David is a man after God's own heart. God understands what God, David understands what God wants. It's not, it's not the blood of 10,000 sheep. David comes to God in Psalm 51 against you and you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight. David comes with repentance, with a broken heart, confession. That's what God wants. Habakkuk 2.4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. The just shall live by faith. Sound familiar? Well, it should. It's right there in Romans 1, right? The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. You might have read that in Romans and thought, oh, well, you know, Paul's enlightening us to some new New Testament truth. Oh, no, Paul is just quoting an Old Testament prophet, Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. This is why if you will listen to Moses and the prophets, you live by faith. You see, the rich man thought, well, because I'm rich and because I have the ability to offer all these sacrifices and I have this ability because I'm rich to partake of all of the sacrificial laws and regulations and to fulfill them to the letter fully. Whatever the feast is, I can celebrate it. Whatever, whatever kind of sacrifices need to be given, I can give them. And I, not only can I give, but I can give generously to all of them. Therefore, I must be right with God. You're not. You're not living by faith. You're not coming to God as a sinner. 
Do you, you, don't, you don't think you need any atonement. You're just trying to fulfill the letter of the law. You're coming to God by faith saying, I am a wicked sinner. You think everyone else is a wicked sinner. You're rich, so you're fine. You're not fine. You're living by faith. You're living by your works. The law was given not to make you righteous, but to make you see just what a sinner you are. When Moses gave them the law, they offered a lamb in the morning and a lamb at the evening every day. Every day. By the time Jesus shows up, they're still offering a lamb in the morning and a lamb in the evening. They're still doing the Day of Atonement every year. Isn't this ever going to work? Isn't our sin ever going to actually be atoned for? Are we going to have to kill lambs every morning and every evening forever? When is our sin actually going to be paid for? Is there no propitiation? Is there, is there no final reckoning? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. John the Baptist stands up and says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus shows up, and the whole system is fulfilled in his life. All you had to believe in the Old Testament was that the day would come that God would send the deliverer. Exactly what the details were, it didn't really, you didn't have them all. You just didn't have them. But you did have faith. You did know you were a sinner. You did know your sin needed to be atoned for. You did know that, that death had to occur. And when John the Baptist stands up and points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God, Everyone standing there had no difficulty whatsoever putting together what John was saying. God's going to offer his son a lamb? Wow. God's own son. Wow, I wonder if that will actually pay for sin. <laughs> yeah, that actually does. This is the gospel. It's it started back in Genesis, chapter 3. As soon as sin occurred, God promised a deliverer. And if you just look, just listen to Moses and the prophets. They'll point you to the deliverer. They'll point you to faith. They'll point you to the sacrificial system atoning to the death. And who really thinks the blood of bulls and goats are actually going to take away your sin? Nobody. Because it didn't, even in the Old Testament. It didn't. No one's sins were fully paid for until Jesus died. But they were only saved by faith anyway. It's always been by faith. They simply believed in the Messiah who was going to come, and we believe in the Messiah who has come. Same belief, same Messiah. We know a lot more than they did, but they knew God was going to send someone to deliver them. We know God has sent someone to deliver us. We call on the name of the Lord, they call on the name of the Lord. The gospel that Peter gets up and preaches on the day of Pentecost, it's not, no one's written a single, a single verse of the whole New Testament when Peter stands up and preaches. He preaches from the Old Testament, and people get saved. Why? Because it's all there. He just plugs Jesus into it. And everyone who believed in God under the Old Covenant immediately believed in Jesus. They have Moses and the prophets. 
Listen to them. Listen to Moses and the prophets, and you will have salvation. We believe the same God wrote both the Old Covenant and the New. And it is one book, one message, one Savior, one person, Jesus. It's essential we study our Old Testament. You really don't appreciate the New Testament at all until you get the Old Testament. Remember this, everyone who wrote the New Testament, they all knew the, wrote the New Testament, they all knew the Old Testament really well. It was the only book they had. You'll know your New Testament better if you study your Old Testament. Today is the day to believe. Today is the day to call on the name of the Lord. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that from the moment of creation, the world was brand new. Adam and Eve hadn't even had any children yet. Yet they rebelled against you, and even then, you loved them. You shed the blood of animals on their behalf, explained to them the coming Savior. You gave them the gospel, the message. You are a forgiving God. You're a gracious God. You didn't simply throw them out of the garden, leave them on their own, and make a new couple who wouldn't sin. You promised to send a redeemer for their descendants, us. You love this world. You created this world. You will eventually come and recreate new heavens and new earth where we will dwell forever, worshiping and loving you. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. Thank you for the willingness to sacrifice your own son. May we never lose the wonder of what you've done for us. We pray in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen.